Hey everyone, welcome back to the Blockchain Podcast. And today I'm going to talk a little bit about Bitcoin, especially scaling, and a little bit about Lightning, and where we're going to have some issues here pretty soon. Decentralized finance, including MakerDAO, Dai, Dharma, Compound, and those tools, really looking at uh, the concepts of creating these loans, this whole new uh, loan sort of system that's being uh, developed, and then also uh, talk a little bit about uh, a video that I'll be making so that you can visually see what's going on there. So if you're interested in that, make sure that you go to the blockchain.co website and then go to the YouTube channel uh, in the upper right and then go subscribe there, and that should be out in the coming week. And then I'll talk a little bit about something uh, off the crypto sort of uh, beaten path, if you will, and touch bases on Tesla and the inflation in the U.S. and the yield curve and how it's uh, acting a little bit funny right now and what that might mean for the macro economy. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and jump into it. So Bitcoin somewhere around the 8,000 mark. It's kind of hanging out there, uh, went up above uh, to 8,000 something and then down below over the last uh, week, week and a half. Uh, so people are kind of targeting 10,000-ish to 6,000-ish. You know, if it's a break up, we're going to be looking at somewhere on the order of 10K. And if it's a breakdown, potentially somewhere on the order of 6K. But overall, I think things look healthy. I don't see anything too crazy. And then in the broader market, I don't see you know, needs for liquidation or anything uh, spectacular like that. Now, that said, there are a handful of things coming up in the next week, I should say. And uh, the biggest one I think that is worth talking about is EOS and their June 1st sort of uh, declaration or announcement of some sort of tools or some sort of software that they've been working on. They keep mentioning not to overhype it. But uh, they did disclose recently that they hold 140,000 Bitcoin. So somewhere on the order of a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. So I don't know if they're going to do something with that or if that's just in their reserves. But that seems like a lot uh, to hold in reserves for Bitcoin alone. And then they're also talking uh, a little bit about, uh, or at least people are speculating, maybe there's some sort of social network. They've unstaked a handful of their... Um, quite a bit of their uh, EOS tokens. So something's going to go on in the next week with EOS. Might be big, might not be big. They're trying to temper expectations now, but that could drive the broader market if it's a big enough announcement. But I think more than likely it'll drive uh, EOS potentially up or potentially down. You know, people have been hyping this for a while. And if it's a disappointment, maybe you'll see the EOS token go down. But that's all I see kind of in the near term horizon. It'll really affect things or that could potentially really affect things uh, across EOS and maybe a little bit in the broader market, but I don't expect too much. What's going to affect Bitcoin the most, I think, going forward is if it does, in fact, break up. And I've been saying this before, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but, you know, whatever. I think it's important that if you're listening to this podcast and if you listen to previous ones or if you miss some that you keep on hearing it over and over and over again which is the biggest Achilles heel for Bitcoin is scaling. And as the price goes up, the fees go higher and the blocks get fuller. All right, when there's more speculation, more people interested, the blocks get full, fees go up, it gets more and more expensive. And then as people come on board, they're going to be like, I don't want to pay five, 10, $15 for a transfer. You know, if you're paying that high of fees, you got to be moving a lot of money on the order of thousands or tens of thousands to really not feel the pinch at all. I suppose if you were moving 100, 100 bucks or something and you're paying 15 bucks that's 15% that's unacceptable. So it's it's a real big problem and I and Jeff Garzik um I believe that's his name yeah Garzik just mentioned that in a recent uh, uh article that you know that's the Achilles heel that's the problem that we're going to be running into that's the problem that we actually have now if you've tried to send bitcoin 
you know, with a wallet that automatically, say, calculates the fees, it's pretty high fees for whatever you're sending it, even if it's a small amount. And so for people around the world, you know, paying dollars to, you know, one, two, five, ten, fifteen, twenty dollars or whatever to send something, it's just not acceptable. It might be acceptable in the developed world, especially when you're transferring large amounts of money, but it's not acceptable in the developing, emerging, or most of the population in the world, to be perfectly fair. And so that's going to come up, and it always comes up when the price increases, especially when it's in this ten thousand market, becomes a problem. And the developers for Bitcoin Core and Lightning and so forth and Blockstream and all these folks say that、uh, Lightning's the answer, and I and I do believe Lightning's a great thing, and it probably is the answer, but it's just not built into everything, and it's not the standard operating procedure, and it's not what people are familiar with, and so you really have to go out of your way, and you really have to understand to use Lightning, and it is instant, and it is low fees, extremely low fees, and it is great from that perspective, but from a user experience and an adoption and an education and a marketing and an integration. Point of view, it's simply not there. Now we're going to get to Bitcoin having next year, and I talked a little bit about that in the last podcast and how that's probably not going to have the price increase effect that some people think, but it certainly will have an effect. And I certainly think we're in a growth period for Bitcoin, but it will stagnate if this、uh, if the fees are not taken care of and if Lightning isn't ubiquitous. And I don't think it will be in the next within the next year or so. I just really don't. And so these other coins, these alt coins, we're going to have the same debate. You know, I don't think we're going to have the scaling debate, or we're not going to have the block size increase debate. But people will start going to other coins, just like they did before. It's human nature. I just wish people would really understand how how much that is part of human nature. But on the flip side, to defend the core folks and to defend the Bitcoin small block sort of folks. You do need a high block fee to support the network, and this is something that's harder for people to understand. But when the mining block reward keeps on being reduced, the incentive for miners to mine and secure the network is going to be the fees. So the fees do need to be relatively high, and there is some number that it needs to be, and it's expensive. And moving things on chain will be expensive, and you will have to move to Lightning. You will have to move to you know some other、uh, uh, off-chain scaling, and that's because they want to preserve the decentralized sort of capabilities of the system, to where anybody can run a node and anyone can、uh, support the network in that way. In things like Ethereum or or Dash or whatever, they're not looking for people to necessarily be running a node, and especially for something like Dash, they're paying people to run a node, and they expect the nodes to become very expensive. Same for EOS. The nodes are these massive servers that have huge amounts of memory, huge amount of compute power, huge amount of bandwidth, and they cost a ton of money to maintain and uh, and uh, update and preserve and secure and all those things. But the inflation from those systems are being put towards supporting that system. It's a different model. It、uh, doesn't allow you know、uh, Joe, Jane Doe, and and、uh, John Doe and Jane Doe to just like run something at their house, run a node at their house. They can't do that.、Um, but for Bitcoin, you can. But again, the trade-off for that decentralization,、um, which is a good thing, it's it's a it's an important value proposition, is that、uh, you need to develop Lightning, you need to develop it fast. And you needed to develop the tools to uh, for uh, people to integrate with, and there are some. And you know, I've been playing around with a handful, and I'll、uh, probably make some videos about some of the、uh, more developed tools at this point, and wallets, and、uh, payment processors, and so forth. And so, if, again, if you're interested in that, make sure that you、uh, go to the YouTube channel. You know, go to the website blockchain.co, and then hit the uh, YouTube uh, social link in the top right, and then go subscribe to the page. Or the channel, I should say, and you'll see some of those videos. But it's critically important. I, I keep on saying it's critically, critically important to understand that Bitcoin will stagnate at some 
some price point between 10 and 20 simply because fees will not allow it. Now, if EOS or these others are able to wrap Bitcoin or, and, and do something around being able to transfer it cheaply, um, then there might be something there. And that might be something that they announce in the next uh, week or so. But there has to be a way to scale Bitcoin. And if there's not a way to scale Bitcoin, its price has to unequivocally stagnate. So um, that's that. Uh, so with that said, let's jump on to the, uh, and, I sh- and I should say too, just to kind of add to that, not seem like it's a huge dire situation is, you know, if, if you're into Bitcoin and you're, and you're betting on it, then you need to understand lightning. You need to figure out, you know, how that works and, and how to integrate that and how to use that. But also I, I just am not a proponent of all your eggs in one basket in this early market, because that is an Achilles heel for Bitcoin. And that does suggest that, uh, a lot of the volume or volumes will be offloaded onto other chains like Ethereum, EOS, uh, Cardano, Litecoin, Dash, Monero. And in a way, that's a form of scaling. Other chains are a form of scaling. They're just different networks, different systems. And that might be what the future holds. So make sure that you think about diversification and uh, you don't uh, buy in all on Bitcoin. There's some people I met this last uh, couple weeks that uh, are all Bitcoin, all Bitcoin. And I just think from a financial and risk management point of view that that's not particularly wise, but that's just me. So let's jump into decentralized finance. And this is interesting stuff, and it's not on the Bitcoin network. It's on the Ethereum network. And you've heard me say, you know, I, I'm not uh, I'm not the biggest fan of Ethereum and the development process, but there are a ton of developers on Ethereum uh, for the core sort of platform and then also for all these things on top of it. So it does have a lot of people building. And I do think it has hit on, with this decentralized finance, an important application in this space, a very important application in this space. And this may be, in my mind, the saving grace for Ethereum if it can hold these platforms and it can actually adopt a lot of people to use these, which it seems like it is, then I think, you know, that's that's interesting. And so specifically MakerDAO, DAI, and now Dharma and Compound, those are all tools that uh, are being built in the decentralized finance sort of world. And if you're not familiar, MakerDAO allows you to um, uh, issue Ether and then borrow against that and generate DAI, which is a stable coin. And then you can take some of that uh, DAI and you can pump it into Dharma and you can, well, I suppose you wouldn't pump it into Dharma straight through that. But um, with Dharma, I should say, is that it's a smart contract sort of system where you can um, take your USDC, your Ether, your DAI, you can send it to their smart contract, and then it will generate you know interest rates right now for Ether 2.5%, for DAI 11%, which is pretty good, and then for uh, USDC 8%. And uh, Compound, you can do a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on which asset. And they have a handful of more assets. But same idea is, you know, on the Ethereum network with these different coins, um, you can lend against them. You can borrow against them. And some people are doing that to uh, avoid tax events. So if you sell all your Ether, then, you know, that's a tax event. But if you lend it and then you borrow some other asset, you know, it's not a taxable event, uh, at least not in the U.S. And so there are aspects of that. There are also aspects of leverage, being able to, you know, if you're holding Ether, lock it up, borrow against that. And then what you borrowed against that, some people are taking that money and buying more Ether than (laughs) locking up a portion of that and then borrowing against that. And so they're levering levering up their position. Now, if Ether plummets, then they're going to have a problem. But if it moves up, then, you know, they, they're levering, levering. And overall, I don't think there's too much debt in the system. It's over collateralized by, I think, 5x or so right now. So it's pretty safe. And then uh, 
and it's also developing. They're developing to take on multiple collateral uh, version or, or multi-collateral. So instead of Ether, just Ether, you can actually use other assets. And I believe they all have to be uh, Ethereum-based assets. Um, you can use those as collateral and so forth. But I'm really interested in this space, and uh, I'm really interested in the development of it. And it, you know, just uh, just the aspect of being able to take USDC, which is backed by Circle and Coinbase, which by actual dollars and if you trust them there's some counterparty risk there but if you trust them then that means you're basically taking dollars and then you're lending them out on dharma and you're just making eight percent on cash which you can't make eight percent on cash right now especially with how the yield curves looking and interest rates are looking in the u.s i mean i mean even in most developed countries eight percent on cash is pretty dang good now you have to match that loan with someone else or they have to match that loan with someone else and there's some caveats there but again if you're interested in the details of that go to the youtube channel the blockchain youtube channel and subscribe and there'll be some videos showing how exactly to do that in the next week or so um so great great application definitely developing cool thing for ethereum um look into it um the last little thing that uh, i'm just going to throw in here too for crypto is global coin so if you've been reading the news lately apparently facebook is going to la launch a stable coin uh, called global coin or at least codename global coin at this point um, for on their platform and it's supposed to launch sometime in 2020 is what the rumor is and it's no secret that facebook has been um, working diligently to uh, recruit crypto folks and develop something some secret project internally so that's not surprising but I would caution against this because of Facebook's privacy um, history and selling data and using that data for all sorts of political things and censorship and, and all sorts of stuff. I don't have to really remind anybody about how Facebook uh, is not necessarily the most uh, liked company in the world. Um, but if they have these this stable coin and they have control over this network and they can see everything on this network, then they will know where money's flowing to. They'll know what you're buying. They'll know all of that information, assuming that there's no privacy aspects, which I wouldn't think there would be. Um, and so it's, it's just, in my mind, it's kind of a dangerous thing and it's kind of a, uh, you know, big brother sort of thing at the corporate level. So I wouldn't encourage it. I think things like, uh, Monero, Horizon, Bitcoin, Litecoin, any other actual crypto is a, is a better bet than buying into the Facebook ecosystem when that does in fact come out, but we'll wait and see and we'll, we'll pass judgment, uh, when it comes, but it may all, it may in fact be beneficial though for crypto adoption in general. It may end up being a very good on ramp for crypto, so it may end up being a good thing in broader adoption. But you know, with people in the broader broader population, they don't necessarily think about the privacy or governance or you know economic implications of that. And so, hopefully, it becomes an on ramp for crypto in general, but isn't uh, where people end up staying because. It just, I just don't think it's good to give one company that much power, but we'll see what happens. So switching over to kind of the more normal markets, uh, I, I want to touch bases on Tesla a little bit. And I know this is a, Tesla's always been a heated topic, but I think it's, it's gotten to a point where I, I think I'm kind of confident in just kind of explaining my, my position there and where I think things are going and just kind of the saga of Tesla. Um, so you have these people who love Tesla and they love that Tesla no matter what. And there are people who hate Tesla and they primarily hate Tesla from, from what I can tell, uh, based on their kind of financial structure or the valuation or what Elon Musk is saying and, and non-adherence to securities rules and just blatantly lying in some regards. 
So there's kind of this dichotomy there. And the people who love him are also saying you're saving the planet, you're doing all these cool things. And they're kind of a little bit cultish and worshiping of Tesla. But really what I care about is reality. And reality is, is that, you know, their balance sheet is in a rough position. They did raise some money recently, a couple billion. Um, but they have a demand problem. And that's just the truth of the matter is that they saturated demand in the U.S. and potentially Europe at this point. And now they need more demand and they're building their factory in China, which will be good once that goes. And they'll be able to hopefully um, produce some uh, vehicles for the Chinese market. But of course, we have the trade war going on and we have, you know, anti-U.S. sediment going on and people, you know, dumping U.S. products. And I don't know how prevalent that is actually is, but in the news, it's certainly being promoted um, as a way to kind of fight this trade war by the everyday Joe in China. And so there's that headwind. And then there's just the headwind of margins, the cost of production. Um, and so overall, it, it's, a t- it's a tough spot. So last year, the tough spot for Tesla was, can you produce a significant number of Model 3s? And, you know, through some really difficult times, they were able to and, and good on them. And uh, uh, But they can't get the price down to 35K. They briefly launched that. And then they kind of pulled it back and it's still just too expensive to compete, in my opinion, uh, as a full package, as a real package, not a 35K stripped down package with, you know, everyday vehicles like Honda, Toyota and and things like that. So they aren't yet able to access the very broad market. And I don't think the cost structure will support that anytime soon. Now, I think the biggest risk at this point is their cash position, their demand position. And I think Elon Musk has basically... Um, exhausted his visionary uh, appeal, his visionary, uh, what's, uh, uh, I don't know how to put it, the visionary valuation or the visionary value that's kind of this magical, oh, we're going to keep going, we're going to keep growing, we're going to, you know, uh, be this amazing, huge, giant company that's, you know, thousands of dollars a share. Because he has this ability to basically project out just far enough and just sci-fi enough that people kind of believe it, but he always misses the deadlines. But, you know, maybe a couple years, year or two later, he ends up, you know, hitting them to a certain degree. And so it's this kind of uh, constant play between reality and non-reality. And I think at this point, and I'm pretty sure at this point, that he's put he's gotten to the end of that row. Because the robo-taxi vision and, you know, summoning cars and you know, a million robo taxis on the road and I just got to flip a switch and all these things. It's just not true. And the analysts on wall street and all over the place and only a handful are really supporting him at this point, but most of them have called bullshit on that. And it's like, you're not going to have that in a year. You're not going to have this autonomous Uber robo taxi system in a year. You're just not. And you're even, even further being a technical person and understanding this to a certain degree, what he's claiming with his autonomy is just, isn't true as far as how it will work and, uh, you know, how, how good it will be because, you know, just recently consumer reports came out and said that, um, the autopilot now, um, is, is worse than a human. And it's really kind of an impediment to driving because a human has to be so involved with things like lane changing because the, uh, the Tesla cuts people off, you know, it's not aware of how fast the traffic is coming from behind. It doesn't take into account that someone might be signaling ahead of them. And those are all difficult things for a machine to interpret and understand and infer and then take uh, action that is, you know, kind of set for that sort of environment. So it's one thing to change lanes, but it's another thing to 
understand that someone coming in fast from behind you that maybe you shouldn't change lanes or that someone uh, has their blinker on in front of you and is about to merge to the left and you're trying to merge ahead of or you're trying to change lanes and go ahead of them so all these things are complicated things that humans have no issue kind of navigating but um uh, vehicles or uh current deep learning systems do and so what i would say to kind of close out the tesla thing is it's going down it's going down further they may end up uh, applying for or filing for bankruptcy at some point in the coming years. I don't think they can get to where they need to get to before. They either have to raise a massive amount of money at a ridiculous um, uh, coupon, uh, interest rate or they may have to restructure. So I think it's probably a restructuring story like uh, the folks that I think Morgan Stanley mentioned. I think that what's happened now with the robo-taxi sort of promise is akin to his promise of manufacturing where you know he mentioned that it was all going to be automated. We're going to be robots everywhere. Um, and they're going to do basically everything, and the throughputs and the cost is just going to plummet. And uh, that was a big promise, and that didn't end up happening. They had to scale back a lot of their automation, which it makes sense from a technical point of view, um, and add more people, and that you know, increased the uh, cost structure and probably uh, made it so that they couldn't get to where they wanted to go. And for the robo-taxi, they're in a similar spot. He's promising you know, this autonomy, these robo-taxi things, this service, and it's just not going to get there. It's just not. And so not, not in the time that they need it to. And so I think that uh, that's going to fall short, and that's probably going to be the final sort of um, uh, shoot a drop such that some sort of restructuring happens. Uh, there might be a change in management sometime over the next couple of years. I think it, that might be a good thing for a Tesla for them to uh, change out the CEO, but uh, that's just me. So as far as a Tesla story, um, I could talk forever about it. I could talk more, but I think that the psychology of the situation, the financials, the sustainability of the business model, all of those things, those are being revealed and becoming more and more clear. And mainstream analysts are seeing that. And uh, I do think that we'll be talking about some sort of restructuring over the next couple of years. So um, jumping over to the last little thing I want to talk about. And again, this is more about the uh, economy in general. So if you've been watching the yield curve, and I typically take a look at the uh, yield curve every day, every couple of days, and it's looking funny, and uh, rates are kind of dropping uh, across the across the board. You have this uh, dip in the middle as well, around this you know five, seven, ten year as well. Uh, they're lower than the uh, I think the front end. They're lower, but anyway, it looks like a funny curve, and we have this kind of inflation that had picked up um, in April, so around two percent. And so the the Fed thinks that's transitory. Um, but with the trade war and tariffs and things like that, I wouldn't be surprised for prices to increase. I see prices increasing. Now, you know, my local sort of seeing prices increase isn't necessarily what's going on at the macro level, but I do think it is. And so you're seeing this weird sort of dichotomy where, you know, rates are seemingly indicating a weak economy, not as strong as it seems. And then you have uh, the uh, inflation rate picking up which could put us in a very, very tricky situation and is actually the situation that I fear most, which is stagnation and then also inflation. So and it, it could be worse. It could be contraction of the broader economy uh, coupled with inflation. And I think that, you know, the, the bailouts from the 2008 sort of financial crisis and the Great Recession and the, um, the, the massive inf in infusion of uh, dollars uh, hasn't been fully felt yet. And I continue to fear that we are about to experience the brunt of that, which is this artificial boom, this influx of money, these share buybacks that have inflated equities, all of these things 
are coming to an end. And the, the worst thing that can happen right now for us as an economy and as a world economy is for inflation to get out of control. That would just be absolutely devastating. Because what will happen is if inflation starts picking up, then rates are going to have to pick up and the economy is weakening. And so if, if rates are picking up and the economy is weakening, and uh, you would think that those would balance each other out. So in, in typically, if the economy is weakening, then you have, you know, lesser inflation. And then you, you know, things kind of hope to balance out. But if what we have is all these dollars that were deployed, trillions of them coming coming home to roost, if you will, then what we'll have is this inflation caused by actual monetary inflation. And then what we'll have is a weakening economy because we can't really do much about it if we start increasing the debt to start to stimulate. So if we uh, go with this big infrastructure project and we try and push dollars into the system, then we have to borrow. And if we're borrowing at higher rates, and that's a problem. Fortunately, right now, we're borrowing at pretty low rates, right? The, the rates across the yield curve are low. Um, and if that stays low, that's great. But if we have inflation, you would think that they would have to pick up for someone to want to uh, buy those things. And then if they do pick up, then you also have rates pick up. Then you have these these corporate debt that picks up. Then you have people that are on the edge, you know, kind of uh, failing. But then you have people who want to recapitalize or bring on new debt. You have it very difficult and that puts a, dr a drag on the economy. So there's this weird complex thing that's going on. But it does found, feel like we're in some sort of transition Hopefully it stabilizes. If it doesn't, some complex things are going to happen. Um, and uh, they're starting to play out in my mind right now. Again, hopefully they can be muted to a certain extent. But um, there's a lot of things coming together. And if you look at the acceleration of the debt over the next uh, handful of years for the U.S., that's a pretty significant thing too. So I'll be monitoring that. And I'll be talking a little bit about that and sprinkling that in, into these podcasts. It's not crypto-based, but it will in some in some way affect the crypto market. You know, it, it, I, I've always felt that uh, a, a large inflation or inflation um, overall that is perceptible by the people will also be an impetus for investment in crypto, crypto uh, especially those that are deflationary or with fixed sort of inflation rates. It just provides an interesting appeal, and it also um, uh, provides... People with skepticism in the central banking system that currently exists. So I think you'll see more investment go into assets like uh, cryptocurrencies, just like you would see them potentially go into gold or other currencies in times of uncertainty. So I'll be looking for that as well in the broader market. And uh, overall, with that, I think I'm going to kind of close it out here a little bit abruptly. And uh, again, go to the YouTube page, um, you, the Blockchain YouTube uh, channel. And subscribe because I'll be putting uh, up some videos visually showing you uh, how to do things with Lightning, visually showing you how to uh, do things with the decentralized finance tools that are out there right now. And I think it'll be very informative and very useful going forward. So with that, I will talk to you uh, next time on the Blockchain Podcast.